Hello from Midori House in London and a very warm welcome to Sunday Brunch. We're live here on Monocle 24. This is Emma Nelson. And coming up on today's programme, they were all heroes. Now a new art project celebrates the Dambusters. Also coming up on today's programme... Underneath the Maison sits seven kilometres of chalk caves, or crayeurs as they're known. And there's something like really, really, really magical that happens as you descend into the crayeurs. The graphic designer Tom Hingston tells us about a one-bedroom hotel in Primrose Hill and all its mysteries. We add a gherkin to London's cocktail world and we enjoy some curious art. That is one of our imperatives, that we want to create a really beautiful jewel-like festival that has the right scale, uh, that is enormous fun but feels safe and kind of private in a way. Plus, London, Pride, Brexit and football. Rachel Cunliffe joins me in the studio to go through the weekend papers. All that to come this hour, live from London, with me, Emma Nelson, on Monocle 24. To begin today's programme, Britain's Royal Air Force celebrates its centenary this week. It spent the last hundred years protecting the UK in the air. One of its most famous operations involved an airborne attack on a German dam in May 1943. The 133 men who took part in that raid went on to be known as the Dam Busters. Well, the artist Dan Llewellyn Hall is one of Britain's most prominent portrait artists. He's painted a portrait of every single one of the Dam Busters, and I'm delighted to say he joins me in the studio now. Welcome to Monocle 24, Dan. For those of us who don't know the exact story of the Dam Busters, could you quickly tell us what the, these men did and why they inspired you to get your brush out and start painting them? So uh, an evening in 1943 uh, was, the, was, was the sort of the whole operation took place just over, over the course of several hours, really. And um, these guys set off 133 men in 19 Lancaster bombers from uh, Lincolnshire. And uh, they, they were set with this like, this uh, mission. They had, to, they had to destroy the the German dams, really, which were the which were generating the white coal, I suppose, for Hitler in the Ruhr Valley. And uh, uh, they, they had no knowledge, of really, of what this operation was about. So they had sort of 10 weeks training for it. All young guys, the, you know, the average age would have been sort of early 20s, 22, something like that. Uh, from all parts of the world, to Australian, Canadian, New Zealanders, uh, Americans, um, one Welshman, uh, half a dozen Scottish. And so uh, the, these guys, they made their way over and then they, they did this, this very um, uh, sort of uh, bizarre action of dropping these these barrel bombs, which no one had ever tried out before. Um which were dreamt up and sort of brought into action by uh, Sir Barnes Wallace, who tested them prior to that. And uh, it was an incredible feat, really, of, of physics and the way this, this thing would work. But then, of course, you needed that, that real, the real guts of, of these guys to take these things out and do, and do the job. And, um, and I think it must have been, I think every single one of them were, were incredibly fearful of what was about to come, uh, you know, full of trepidation. So my introduction to this really was via... Um, a friend who suggested that there's only one uh, British survivor left of this group, these 133 men. And, um, you know, he was fighting fit and he was sort of doing his tours around the UK to schools or sort of places at the age of 97. A guy called Johnny Johnson, who was a bomb aimer in the, in the rear of one of the, one of the aircraft. Um, and he, uh, and, he, and when I met him and sat, I thought that really ultimately it was going to be one, one portrait I was going to work from, of this, from this sitting. 
And then uh, he became, you know, he started talking more and more about this group of people and his friends, uh, and I just became very, you know, interested really in the, in the much wider group of these these men. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful for the sort of uh, the 75th anniversary to reunite them and have him come into this room, being faced with all these guys that they hadn't hadn't seen since the briefing of the morning uh, in 1943, when around about 56 of them didn't return. So it was it was quite a harrowing sort of thing altogether I think What was it like when he saw these pictures? He visibly moved you know I must say I think he was uh, he, he, he unve- we unveiled them first of all in Lincolnshire in the uh, International Bomber Command Centre so all families came from all over the world to, to unveil them and he was there amongst all these and, and looking and I think uh, he was, yeah I think he was visibly taken aback by it and uh, you know How uh, did you go about first and foremost getting pictures of these men but secondly capturing who these men may well have been, knowing full well that you'll never meet them. Yeah, well, I, I'd relied really on um, a connection with a historian, a man called Charles Foster, who's just, just about, he just published a book that came at the same time as the exhibition was scheduled for, and he's um, he'd spent the past 10 years researching all of these guys individually and writing biographies on them. And uh, so he was my first point of contact. So I had all the the photographs, some of the photographs from him, and then I started making contacts with families all around the world and reaching out to them in any way I could. And uh, and over the you know since then and now I'm in contact with I should say probably about sixty or so of those those men's families all around the world. And uh, that that really was my uh, my my in on it. And obviously I had no way really of uh, getting to, to equate myself with them. I had these very some of them very scant sort of images of. of uh, you know, very sketchy, some of them, of which some of these men, only one or two photographs exist, because um, there were no official photographs taken of them before the raid itself. Um, but in all of them, like the common thread was this sort of look of uh, trepidation and, um, uh, you know, that, that that was the one thing that, that, that brought them all together was that I could see in these eyes, these faces, which were sort of visibly sort of fearful, I think, really, um, not knowing what was about to come up and that... Uh, it was something special, but they had no idea what it was. It's astonishing the way that you've approached each photograph because you do get this look of trepidation. I think it's an extremely good way of describing the, the sort of many of them are just looking, sta- staring straight out at us. Um, and the way that they're categorised is by uh, which flight they were on, which dam they were attacking. And there's a real poignancy when you see, OK, well, let's have a look at um, AJL, first aircraft to attack the Ada Dam, return safely. So we see the picture of the pilot and the flight engineer and the navigator. And then you move on a little bit and you have one crew who abandoned their mission, one crew who crashed. And it's astonishing how these men's fates were just divided up depending on which plane they happened to be on. Yeah, I think it was like drawing lots, you know. It was it was it was more it really was straightforward as that, I think, you know. Um What did the families think of the fact that you were bringing all these people together? Well, they're very grateful. I think very grateful that, that there was a sort of another I suppose a generation one one once removed really from the whole equation um doing something about it and maybe uh reinvigorating it but i think the thing about portraits for me in particular painted portraits like this is that you can um introduce an element to it which which no nothing else can really really do or you know there's no other medium really can can embrace it in such a way i think um Photographs are archival and they're, they're, they're a split second and they are factual. You can't argue with them. They're, they're, they're um, indisputable. But a painting is uh, something which everyone feels they can they can have some in, some level of engagement with it, particularly a portrait. 
and they can they can quiz it in all sorts of ways. Uh, but you know what it does mean is that you you get this area of invention you you can you can introduce, and of course those photographs are all I had to work from. But I had had to interpret them as paintings, so I had to had to you make make the paint do something different. What do you what is our approach nowadays to portraits? I mean, you've painted what the you've been commissioned to paint portraits of what the Queen, Duke of Cambridge. So, you know, you're 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 up there with the people who you're you're being allowed to, to sort of interpret. But what do we now? do with portraits given the fact that everybody takes photographs all the time and as you say it is sort of factual although we won't get into the area of what people do to their photographs and make them look better or worse or what have you but we're so surrounded by snapshots of the world what does a portrait add that something flung onto instagram won't do well it's uh, it's, it's an image which is distilled really through through the through the artist's eye and through an interaction, it should be. I think so. If you have a sit, if there's a sitting has taken place, then then there is a there should be there should be a, an obvious sense of relationship between, you know, the the artist and the sitter. And I think that, that if that's not conveyed, then you know it's a it's a failure as an image. I think. Um, these relationships that you build, I'm obviously going to ask you: painting the Queen, painting the Duke of Cambridge. How do you build a relationship with someone like that? Very quickly. You know. <laughs> uh, I how I had you a, have with them. Well, uh, you know, you you've got a sort of. Uh, take shortcuts. I think you know you, you have to get beyond all the sort of immediate niceties. Once once you've done that and the obvious formalities of those sorts of sittings, you uh, you have to break them down quickly because you you have to in, you have to infiltrate them. You have to get it beyond the skin as best you can. I mean, there's no point. You've got to remember these people are the, the most photographed people in the world, amongst the most photographed, and they're very familiar with it. They they know the tricks. They know what people do, and they uh, it's all choreographed largely. And so. You've got to work quite hard, you know, to get beyond that. And my my my, my approach really is to, um, uh, I suppose, to uh, you know, just chat at them relentlessly, and get them really to get them onto a subject which you can, you know, tell that they're keen to talk about. Uh, and then guards come down. But you know, with these people, I, I I had very you know milliseconds of expressions which which I had which I worked from. I had a photographer. Um, on both occasions, who, who was busy snapping away as I was, you know, look, making it look like I was drawing, but I mean, I was, but it wasn't exactly anything substantial. But I was sort of, it was all of a prop. So, uh, so then you get, you know, the, sometimes you get this single expression with a hand or a gesture, and you think that's it, that's got, that's got everything going on, that's saying more than any any other part of this sitting. Can and when you, when you're in the middle of that situation, you've got all this paraphernalia around you. You've got the formality of the situation. You've got the person who you're you're, you're painting, who is clearly such a huge, huge global figure. Then you have a photographer, and you have no time, and you've got to get beneath their skin. How um, how hard is it then just to sort of capture that moment that you need to, to, to get out of it? How authentic an experience can you get out of someone in that in that slightly chaotic situation as opposed to sitting in front of someone who has all the time in the world, you might be on your own with them, you can really take your time? You have to, uh, I think you have to go into the room knowing, vaguely knowing what, what you, how you want to approach it and you have to sort of, I suppose... Um, just tr- trigger those those, those reactions. Um, you know, if necessary, make the sitter feel vaguely uncomfortable, or you know, put them in a position because you know you're not you're not you're not well, going to get that chance mean? again. Well, you're not. A, well, you're not going to a three-legged chair. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you know you could ask them move around, move this, move that, and sort of they they become a little bit sort of flustered. Um, 
and in that in those brief interchanges you, you've got you've got a potential moment that you, that, you, that you can record finally you don't just paint portraits you're now involved in projects where art is being used as a form of protest um out of london at the moment there are pa- plans and construction is underway for high speed rail 2 which is uh, as as is suggested a high speed ra- high speed rail link up connecting london with the rest of the country up to the northwest there has been an awful lot of protest and a lot awful lot of kerfuffle over what needs to be done to make this project happen not least cutting some beautiful trees down in London in order to create a, a temporary taxi rank. Have you decided that art is the best way to try and stop this from happening? Yeah, we uh, last week we had um, well over 100 artists, um, all varying from you know primary school children, of which there were about 60 from local schools, right the way up to... Um, you know, artists, local artists, also people like Martin Rose and the Guardian cartoonist, Adam Dant, uh, another, another artist uh, I, I admire. And I invited these people. And I thought, well, with the, one one good way of creating awareness is is through uh, imaging, you know, and, and and making making drawings and paintings from the location. So we all camp took camp in this in this park in, in Euston Gardens, and we um, we explored the the imagery around it, and really. It's twofold. One thing is it creates awareness. Secondly, you are engaging people who, who are not really part of the of the dialogue and not really understanding what's about to happen, what's looming. And uh, the Euston Gardens, they act as this buffer between the major interchange and the Euston Road, the most polluted road in the United, in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and yeah, HS2, as you say, are about to chop the lot down to create a temporary taxi rank. And this... I think it's quite alarming, really. Dan Llewellyn Hall, thank you for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on Sunday brunch, cocktails of the view and we look at the newspapers. Stay with us. Stay one step ahead of the breaking news. People are saying, look, enough is enough. The middle class is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. The rich are getting richer. And uh, they're saying, look, this is not a fair game. Hear industry-leading insights from our experts. When tech companies have problems, they can go south very quickly. Blackberry, Nokia nowhere near the companies they used to be but both were invincible. Nokia boasted that they were one of the first companies on the planet to sell one billion of their products. And catch up with Monocle's Bureau around the world. Every weekday at noon London time, keep your appointment with The Briefing on Monocle 24. And 17 here in London. You're with Sunday Brunch. A very warm welcome from me, Emma Nelson. Now, the champagne maker Ruinard, at 290 years old, is the oldest in the world. But it's celebrating its birthday in the most modern of ways, in the form of a pop-up one-bedroom hotel. The graphic designer Tom Hingston has teamed up with the Danish chef Bo Lindegaard on the project in Primrose Hill here in London. And Monocle's Christy Evans packed an overnight case and paid a visit to Hotel 1729. At the very, very beginning, it became quite obvious to us that we should pay a visit to the Maison, which is in Champagne in France, to understand better the kind of history and the provenance of Runa and, and how the Maison works. And it was that visit which really was the kind of starting point for, for our 
you know, creative process and certainly the concept that you're seeing around you. Above ground level, you have this very sort of traditional maison. It's a sort of very, the sort of classic French maison that's very much, you know, the sort of heritage part of the brand. And then up underneath the maison sits seven kilometers of chalk caves or crayeurs as they're known. And there's something like really, really, really magical that happens as you descend into the, into the crayeurs. It's where they store the champagne. And, you know, you've got well, more than 300 years of history down in these caves, which is, is kind of fascinating. And, and the sort of the smell, the humidity, the texture and the grittiness, what we were really keen to do was try and transpose all of those elements and bring them into this interior space that you're sitting in now. And the other thing is that the whole of the crayons are bathed in this sodium light and it's the only colour on the spectrum that doesn't pollute the liquid inside the bottle. So you have these incredible white chalk caves that are bathed in this kind of amber light. That was definitely a kind of visual thing that we were really interested in bringing into this space. So you step in from the street and you step over the threshold of this residential property and then you're straight into essentially the kitchen. And here we have Beau working. The whole of the hotel really is a nod back to the process of how champagne is made. And so we've sort of split the hotel or the space into different zones. And so upstairs is really about the harvesting of the grape and the ingredients. And so you have the kitchen, you have the idea of the elements and the seasons. Um, and that's very much reflected in the soundtrack that plays and the quality of light and the coloration of the space. So you have these kind of warm hues of yellow and amber. You have sound design that has really subtle textures of wind and rain and bird singing. So you feel like you're in a kind of warm, sunny day. So you feel like you're out in the fields where the grapes are grown. So it's all about the kind of raw ingredients. So is it the same menu every, every single night? Not really. I try to change it, not only for the guests, but also for my own sake. It's always good to keep a bit of unknown factors to keep up the energy. One of the things that changes is, is nature, obviously. We go to the markets quite often. We go to Primrose Hill Park and Forage, and you don't know what you get. So I guess you have to be ready for a bit of a change sometimes. And then as we come through here, this is the main reception. And again, you have this kind of very warm light that washes the room that comes through the window here to my left. And we love the idea that this space is very inviting and kind of warm and comfortable. And then there's little nice visual twists that we've introduced. So you have the Georgia Russell piece on the wall here, which we're looking at, which is this beautiful paper cut. And then you have the Alex Chinnick grandfather clock with the knot tied in it, which, you know, is a lovely reference to sort of 
tying a knot in time, quite literally. And so we're, all of this has been about playing with not only the senses, but also that idea of time. Oh wow. As we descend into the, into the lower ground, exactly as one does at the Maison, you step into the world of the crayers. And what we're referencing here is the, the sodium light, the kind of humidity and the chalk and the grittiness and the texture. And that's really where all of the kind of reference points started for this installation. I feel like I can sort of smell it, almost feels a little, Kind of like that dampness you get under, yeah, like yeah. in underground. That's correct. Yeah, it's it's. There's lots of things doing that. There's a temperature thing happening. There's a sort of thin layer of of mist or of haze. There's the sodium light, and so they're all sort of working together to create that feeling. And these are sort of balls of chalk hanging from the. Yeah, they're, they're, they're suspended pieces of chalk that are hanging from the ceiling above us, and it's the idea that at ground level. It's all about the ingredients, and it's all about the vines, and it's all about the grapes. And then at lower ground, it's about the roots of the vines. And so if you turn to the left, you've got the dining table, which is this great thick piece of wood with graffiti carved into it. Could you talk me through what we're looking at here? One of the lovely things when you visit the Crayers is the walls of the caves are covered in the most incredible like carvings and markings and graffiti that actually dates back to the middle ages and so what you've got is this story of time being told across the walls of the crayers i mean it's quite amazing and we wanted to bring that or an element of that into this space and so We've done that in two ways. The first is we have a series of projections, of, of light projections, that have imagery of the graffiti animating in a very kind of playful way. And then we have the table, and that's a sort of direct reference back to the markings and the carvings into the walls. The first thing that happens when Bo and I work together is that he'll send me a set of drawings that have a series of annotations all over them and that's how the dialogue starts between him and I. I give him visual references and then what he gives me back is a drawn menu and so what we're looking at here are some of the elements of those, of those initial sketches and drawings and then we've carved them into the table. The amazing Tom Hinkston talking to Christy Evans, giving her a tour of Hotel 1729 here in London. That experience may end in just a couple of days, but who knows? More from the installation may be popping up in the future. This is Sunday Brunch. Time 
time now for one of our regular Sunday brunch features called Weekend Reads, but this time it's with a tri- twist because there's quite a lot of doing as well as reading. Claire Conville runs a Curious Arts Festival. It's an eclectic mix of music, literature and comedy taking place every July. And she spoke to Georgina Godwin about what lies in store this year. The festival, in essence, started at Vowood, a beautiful arts and crafts house in Norfolk, eight years ago. And we did two years at Vowood, but for various reasons, mainly logistical, we felt that we needed to find a slightly bigger, more accessible home for it. And as luck would have it, through two people, one of whom was Antonia Fraser, who I met at a party, and who said, you know, you really should do your festival at Powell Park, we came to the house, met David and Mel Roper Curzon, had a lovely lunch, looked around the garden, extensive gardens and the space and thought this would be ideal. Most festival organisers, curators, directors, would, when asked, you know, why do you do it, would say, I have no idea. Um, it, it's, it is very, it's, it's a lot of hard work. There are a lot of challenges and sometimes one is literally tearing one's hair out. But I suppose the pleasures are multiple, and I think one of the key things for me is that we have some dedicated festival, curious festival comers, goers, whatever you want to call them, who literally come back every year and always come and say goodbye to me and always say they've had such a wonderful time and they're coming back next year and they're booking their tickets the next day, but please don't let it get too big. And actually that is one of our imperatives, that we want to create a really beautiful, jewel-like festival that has the right scale Uh, that is enormous fun but feels safe and kind of private in a way. Now you mentioned that it's at Powell Park which is the most exquisite English country house. Uh, It's in Hampshire with extensive grounds that run down to the Solent. It's overlooking the sea. That's right and the house has a a long and varied history but uh, one of the most beautiful artefacts in the house is a letter that Nelson wrote uh, to the owners of the house the night before going out to fight the Battle of Trafalgar. So it has a strong historical element which is reflected to some extent in the programming we do. It has a strong It has these beautiful gardens, it's set in an incredible countryside. If anybody doesn't know about the New Forest, it's a rather remarkable piece of land whereby there are no fields or private land. So animals, horses, uh, donkeys, um, sheep run free throughout the forest. So it's it's a a little bit like being in India, but in Britain, it's most extraordinary. (laughs) Um, So the programme is divided into several sections. You have, at its heart, uh, books. You are a literary agent. This is a a literary festival, but with so many other parts to it. Wonderful, wonderful writers. I know that you have Misha Glenny there. He, of course, is the writer of McMafia, amongst many other authors. Yes, I think um, McMafia was a book that was published 11 years ago. ago. I'm lucky enough to be Misha's agent. And then it had this extraordinary progress really in that it was turned into a drama so a fictional family was created who kind of drive the story but all the storylines for anyone who saw the series are based on on true events which Misa who's a very brilliant journalist sort of tracked down and wrote about but I think it's a book and a series to be very proud of it, it caught a moment earlier this year. I mean, Parliament started driving through the new mafia laws to try and protect against money laundering in this country. So it really hit the zeitgeist. But Misha is one of the most interesting, eloquent and intelligent and, dare I say, funny writers, performers who I've ever seen. And it's a, an extraordinary journey into 
I would say not an underworld so much as a parallel world in which, you know, we're all part of in one way, shape or form. So mm. that's, I think, a, a vital event for us. Yeah. Uh, and just a quick mention of some of the other authors. You have the critically acclaimed novelist Rupert Thompson there. Uh, Emma Healy will be there. She's award winning again. Uh, she has a, a second novel out and uh, various others ranging from, from debut authors to people who are really household names. Yes. And I think that's the point. I mean, you know, we've got Kate Moss coming, we've got the wonderful Matt Hay coming uh, we've got Dolly Alderton coming who many people know, who's with her first book, is still in the bestseller list after 20 weeks, but we also want to support writers, you know it, coming in from a different place so we have a lot of new writers coming we've got the New River Tent, which is three days of poetry with some remarkable authors joining us, include, including uh, Greta Bellamachina and Michael Horowitz we uh, have got a fire poem uh, which we're excited about. So uh, Robert Montgomery, who is uh, Greta's husband, and she will have created this enormous poem construction installation, which will be set on fire at dusk on Saturday night to celebrate our fifth birthday. And we have workshops. So, you know, you can h- learn how to write a novel with Richard Skinner or how to write a Petrarchan sonnet with the, the poetry school. So it is a festival for writers, but it's also a festival for would-be writers too. Mm. You have a wonderful initiative with poems where people can uh, donate to refugees but also get something back. Very excited about this. You can choose love and send a poem in the aid of the charity, wonderful charity, more like a movement called Help Refugees. You go to the New River Tent, you make your donation, you choose a poem and the object of your love or the subject of your love, and a poet will go out and find that person and kneel at their feet and recite a love poem to them. And (laughs) I think that's going to be huge fun over the course of the festival. Yeah. There's a dog show, which is great. There are poker workshops and a poker tournament. Uh, There are creative clay workshops. Huge amount about that. Big focus on wellness as well. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, So sort of gong therapy and breathing and yoga and all sorts of things. I mean, lots of people just kind of spend their time in that part of the festival and just kind of chilling out and having a lovely time. Mm. I think you can get your tarot read as well. (laughs) I always mean to do that at the start of the festival, but I never get get there on time and it's immediately booked up. Yes, well, and also perhaps you don't really want to know what's going to happen. Well... (laughs) That's true. There's an, there's an element of that as well. And also, even if I did have my tarot read, there's not much I can change by sort of four o'clock on Friday afternoon at yeah. the start of the festival. Huge music programme and, of course, live uh, stand-up comedy too. Yeah, we've got the wonderful Simon Evans, who's our inimitable, brilliant compare for the, for the comedy. Uh, we've got The Noise Next Door. We've got uh, the wonderful Al Murray coming to raise a glass. And it's a really lovely way, I find, you know, you know, we have, as you said, there's a very strong literary programme. But it does mean from about five to seven, roughly, you can sort of begin to chill out in preparation for the music in the evenings. In so, the champagne tent. In the champagne <laughs> tent or any other tent or, the, you know, the Hendrix tent or the Chapel Down tent. Or, I'll actually be serving... Curious Marys in the mornings on Saturday and Sunday. So anyone who wants a bloody Mary with their breakfast can come to me. And actually, one of the highlights of the festival is what we call the Breakfast Club. And that's where 
some of our guests talk about local and international news and really create a big conversation around that with a lot of audience participation. So it's a bit like a sort of fabulous sort of, in fact, rather like a wonderful morning radio show, but audience, the audience can participate and everyone's eating a bacon sandwich and having a cup of coffee and you can wear your pyjamas. You know, it's very relaxed. And that's, of course, because people stay on site. Yeah. Uh, we, yes, I mean, we will we'll probably have about 2,000 people staying on site. But as I say, um, it's, the estate is very ample and it's very comfortable. And we try and make it as easy and, and as calm and uh, as for everyone as possible. Claire Conville and the Curious Arts Festival runs from the 20th to the 22nd of July 2018. To hear more from Georgina Godwin, check out Meet the Writers. You can find the full back catalogue online at monocle.com. You're with Sunday Brunch. Let's go through the weekend papers. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. now to have a look at what's happening in the weekend papers. I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by Rachel Cunliffe. She's common comment and features editor at City AM here in London. Good morning. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the programme, Rachel. So we have uh, football on the front page of absolutely everywhere. We'll go back to that in a minute. Um, the English can't quite understand what's happening, can we? We have we're all a little bit baffled. We've got but good news and sunshine. Good news. Let's let's just not let's not jinx it. But first, let's deal with the the darker side of the news, shall we? On Friday, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, gathered together her senior cabinet, locked them in a room, and told them what was what, and told them that if they didn't like it, they could get a taxi home because they wouldn't get their official car. How is it all being reported in the Sunday papers? Uh, a mixture, really. Um, there's sort of a combination of a, a, a strange amount of respect that Theresa May has actually managed to achieve something. And yes, by basically kidnapping her cabinet, locking them in a room and, and saying, you're, you're here until you agree or you're walking home. Um, she has managed to get, finally, two years later, an agreement on what Britain's Brexit deal is going to look like. The trouble is that it's not the Brexit deal that a lot of people hoped for, uh, a lot of people on both sides, but particularly Brexiteers. And now that the details are coming out, a lot of Brexiteers who are not in the cabinet, uh, the backbenchers, are absolutely furious and are threatening to uh, call a leadership contest um, and, and a vote of no confidence in her because they feel that Brexit is being betrayed. Now, there isn't that much detail about what the deal actually is, but we're looking at something closer to a Norway-style agreement. We're not going to be in the single market, but very, very close regulatory uh, uh, arrangement with the EU, um, possibly uh, some control over freedom of movement, but basically taking EU rules, uh, a, 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 
a position for the European Court of Justice and paying EU money. So a lot of the red lines that Theresa May has been saying for two years, she will not cross, appear to have, uh, have been crossed. Um, but the fact is, the Brexiteers who are not in the cabinet don't really have much that they can do because people like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and, and David Davis, who they perhaps would have hoped uh, would have resigned if if Theresa May tried to force this through, actually went along with it. And what you're getting from all of the papers, this is particularly in the Sunday Times, but all of the papers are bemused at Boris Johnson, who has threatened so many times to resign if he didn't get the Brexit deal that he thought that Britain deserved and that he wanted, uh, has now kind of gone along with it. And they feel more betrayed by that than even Theresa May because they that's what they were counting on. The focus is so much, though, on the dissenters and yes. it almost seems as if the entire world has literally taken its eye off the ball, unlike the England football team. And the focus is on the infighting and you get this impression that this is not about the United Kingdom's future and how we align ourselves in the you know with either the European Union or the outside world. It is whether, as the front, the front page of the Sunday time so potently described whether the cabinet brexiteers are being neutered and it becomes quite visceral and sort of quite feral doesn't it the way that these people are fighting when you're dealing with it covering it in the media and you work in business press how much do you hear from businesses saying this is crazy we've just got to focus on what we've got to do as opposed to who we don't like um, all the time. The message that we get again and again is we want certainty and we want pragmatism and basically most people outside the Westminster bubble don't care that much about cabinet infighting and they don't care about Boris Johnson's leadership hopes and they don't care about, we've got here some um, backbench MP who says that Jacob Rees-Mogg could be our Churchill. That's 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 quite fun if you're in the political bubble but that's not what's best for the country and that's not what people care about and it's not going to help us get the best deal possible. Um, what's interesting in this is buried uh, many, many paragraphs in is the idea that Theresa May actually agreed this third way customs arrangement with the EU, with Michelle Barnier and Angela Merkel before she even showed it to her cabinet. So things are moving forward, but the, the cabinet fire story that we're seeing on all the front pages actually isn't where the story is at all. The story is, in fact, the fact that this has been agreed in the, in the future. But she has to play that perfect negotiating position, though, doesn't she? She has to go to the cabinet and say, if you don't agree to this, the EU27 won't agree to it. And then she has to go to the EU27 at the same time and say, if you don't agree to this, I'm going to have hell on toast back in London and we'll <laughs> never get it through. So she has this incredibly difficult job. I wonder, however, why she didn't do this two years ago. Because she, I think, thought that she had the political capital to be able to do it nicely and to be a mediator and to sort of show strength but listen to everyone. A very diverse cabinet. David Cameron obviously suspended cabinet collective responsibility uh, before the referendum and Theresa May was all about Brexiteers and Remainers in her cabinet. And she spent two years trying to nicely get them to agree we've had two years of complete paralysis so now she's been like okay you don't like it you can leave and how much do you think this paralysis has done long-term damage to the united kingdom i think we would have ended up with a much better deal if we'd started two years earlier but i also think it was in, in a way inevitable given how the referendum was run and david cameron's decision to step down immediately afterwards that perhaps we needed two years of soul searching before we all got so fed up that we just decided okay we need to sort it out in some way there's a lovely idea um 
Dominic Lawson has written about ministers must mug up on the art of the no deal. May's proposal unites the cabinet but won't woo woo Brussels break down awaits. I think there is that issue that the real issue of cake and eat it has come with it with the details that we've got. But he makes the point that before the showdown happened in a boiling, boiling hot day in London, sorry, in, in Buckinghamshire, the cabinet was fed beef fillet followed by bread and butter pudding and effectively said carefully disguised as patriotic British fare this is the sort of menu that would stun any diner into acquiescence did you think she just carved them up so they'd say yes and get them sleeping that's that, that's a nice strategy I think that just that's just the way that long governmental meetings are I don't think anyone looks forward to the food whether it's a, a UK government meeting or the EU um, but it's, it's it's nice to see the sort of the hidden messages there and the taxis as well that you mentioned uh, anyone who quit the cabinet would, would not get their ministerial car back to London and there was a, a, a nice line that here's the card for the local taxi firm where well, one journalist called the number and the taxi firm had in fact been out of business uh, and was no longer operating which I think is a nice metaphor for Brexit. Finally she's tough and one commentator is saying the great British public's more, much more interested in the World Cup and Love Island and the manifold challenges of human existence. Mrs May is at least successfully obeying one of their most important injunctions she's getting on with Brexit. Um, so, yes, the United Kingdom, or England, is interested in football, which is usually, generally, an incredibly painful affair and quite a short-lived one as well, because England, although has a reputation for being the founding fathers of the beautiful game, are really rubbish at it. Until now. And we have this glorious World Cup that even people who are not fans of football... And, and I'm, I'm not fans of football and I've managed to get into it. We're finding it super interesting as well, because the prospect of Russia doing really well and trying to tell my six-year-old son yesterday not to support Russia because it's geopolitically incorrect. They're out on penalties. They're out on penalties. Well, he hasn't, he hasn't <laughs> watched it again, so I do hope he's not listening. But the, but the fact is, is that the geopolitics hasn't really played much of a part simply because the game's been so good. I'm not sure about that because um, a couple of months ago when we had the, the poisonings, there were a lot of people who were calling for... Um, England to boycott and for other nations to boycott uh, and there were lots and lots of stories in the run-up about England fans who might face violence or or, or rioting um, and I think we haven't seen that because we've been doing really well and we've been going sort of forward on a wave of optimism but if you were in the pub with me yesterday uh, seeing the uh, reaction when Russia got knocked out on penalties it was almost as joyous as when, when England won their match earlier on so I, I think... Uh, some of that has carried through and sport has always been a way for us to play out some of those geopolitical tensions in a safe way. And Actually, um, obviously all the papers have the England story. The Observer has some wonderful pictures of people celebrating, um, but they've got a nice line here from a woman who is the author of a book called Studying Football, where she says, short of war, there's no more effective way of galvanising English identity than football against another nation. When the England team is involved in a big game, the clock of history seems to stop. And so there's this idea of football as a really uniting force. It's a uniting force and also politically, anybody who's a pro-Brexiteer must, or anybody who who needs to instil a bit of pride in the British people, given the fact that they've all been battered left, right and centre for quite a lot, um, must be over the moon that you, soft power is triumphing on the pitch. But are you are you implying then that you can't be a Remainer and be proud of England's winning? <laughs> it's streak. difficult. It's really, really difficult. I think it's maybe that's a, that great big struggle between uh, who owns this the, the Cross of St George flag, that you can really enjoy flying it when your team win 
in football, but in any other circumstances, it becomes a little bit dodgy. Well, I was a bit worried about this because yesterday was obviously also London Pride and there were 30,000 people marching in the parade and um, numbers up to a million people celebrating in the streets. And there was worries beforehand of what it would be like to have that dynamic and also thousands of people in England pubs, in England shirts and England flags suddenly coming out into the streets and mingling. And those two crowds you know, not necessarily two crowds that you would associate, although that is a massive stereotype and, and, and there are LGBT icons in the football world as well. Um, but actually, it was celebratory. It was really sort of inspiring. You had two lots of, let's let's face it, very drunk people celebrating in the sunshine, two completely different things, but were both about British success in a way. They were. I mean, the, the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, was saying, look, London is the kind of city where you can love who you want and it's nobody else's business. It is a beautiful message to send to the rest of the world. And he was also adding the fact that um, he wants the, the idea of pride to put pressure on other nations and other governments to say, look, if you want to be a country which is respected on the global scale, you need to deal with your LGBT plus um, policies if you if you actually want to sort of do business with us. I mean, it's not necessarily a threat that the United Kingdom and London won't do business with other countries, but it really does send out a quite a strong message, doesn't it? I think it does, especially when you're seeing the rise of, of populism uh, in, in the US and in, and in parts of Europe, and populism sort of tends to go for a more authoritarian, social conservative edge to it. Um, But you also have people worrying about the spread of radical Islam in other parts of the world. And so to have London as a capital where we embrace diversity, I have to say the biggest cheer and the parade went to the gay Muslims. They they were really celebrating. Um, London's leathermen got quite a big cheer where I was. Yes, yes. Well, they they always do. They have the best outfits. They just look so warm. Yeah, it was was a hot day for (laughs) us. to say the drag queens as well (laughs) i was uh, feeling a bit sorry for them all dressed up like that um but also lots of people wearing very little which you know each to their own um but it is a really strong symbol of uh diversity uh religious political uh businesses and charities and um all all kinds of groups um and that is something that we should be proud of exporting to the rest of the world. Lots of other countries have pride parades. I'm not sure how many have them quite as big and quite as colourful as ours. They are. I mean, it's, I don't think it's the biggest one in the world, but it is the one that attracts most of the people. It's only about a, it's only about a mile long, but there is that glorious it, it feeling. It takes over the whole of London, though. Oh, it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. And you get different kinds of people. And one of my favourite ones are the Delta Airlines crew. I mean, they knew how to throw shapes as they went there. They all had their little carry-ons with them. They, like, trundled them along the, along the, the party. But you also had lovely things like um, uh, LGBT plus adopters. They were bringing all their kids along. And for them, they were saying, look, this is an indication that we want to show not just people from the LGBT plus community, but we want to show other people, actually, that you can be a perfectly normal human being, regardless as to how you spend your private life. And you can be a responsible parent, too. That, that's what I love about the parade. The parents with the kids next to the leathermen in their, in their harnesses and absolutely everything in between. Absolutely. What else have we got in the papers? Uh, else in the papers, we've got Trump, who's coming next week. Uh, how, how, are, you, are you going to be no, watching that? No, I'm going to be out of the country. And <laughs> but uh, London's I'm going mayor, to be at Wimbledon. 
brilliant. You see, <laughs> the things we do to avoid things. Um, one thing that um, lo- the London Mayor actually said yesterday is that given the fact that there is uh, no indication that Donald Trump's going to spend more than 10 minutes in London itself, in the British capital, I think he's staying at the American ambassador's house in Regent's Park for a couple of nights, but the rest of the time he's out at Chequers with the, with the Prime Minister and he's going out to do a, a, a visit to, to Windsor. This doesn't feel like a state visit. It's a working trip. But also, the Mayor of London has said, look, if you need to protest, you protest. There's an open invitation to Londoners to demonstrate their feelings towards the leader of the free world. And I think that's right. And imagine if there was a a British leader that the Americans didn't like turning up in Washington and the the American authorities said, no, 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 you you can't protest. And the Americans, with their obsession obsession with free speech, would go absolutely mental over that. So I think the the protest, you're talking, I think, about the the giant balloon that is going to be floated. Um, Some people think it's a bit tasteless. you're allowed to be tasteless and protest. Um, and that's that's really important. But I think that what you said, he's not even going to be in London anyway. And I think all of the behind-the-scenes mechanisms, uh, the officials have been working very hard to make sure that there will be as uh, little opportunity for that kind of conflict as possible. Indeed, because there is a possibility that there's going to be some sort of conflict, not least between Donald Trump and Theresa May, who, after the hand-holding episode a few weeks after he was elected uh, president, it's all gone a little bit wrong. He refused to meet her, I think, at Davos, didn't he? Because he didn't think that she was up to it. I think, and, and we talked about at the beginning about her being strong now. She's not actually known for strength. And you really saw that at the G7 meeting where she wanted to get a sort of collective condemnation of Russia and also wanted to talk to Trump about his sort of tariffs. And he completely ignored her, suggested that uh, Russia should join the rejoin the G7, G8. Um, and her response was she was sort of making her deep disappointment known, which is sort of the mildest tone possible. Brilliant. Well, we shall find out this week what's really said behind closed doors. In the meantime, look to the skies in London to see a giant inflatable Donald Trump baby with tiny hands. Rachel <laughs> Cunliffe, a delight to have us in this, Thank have you. You in this studio. Thank you very much for joining us on Sunday Brunch. on today's programme. Well, there's no shortage of cocktails and places to enjoy them in London and there's no shortage of views in the British capital either. But at the top of one of the British capital's most famous buildings, the Gherkin, drinkers will get a brand new perspective because a new cocktail bar is opening. It's called Helix and Iris. Fernando Augusto Pacheco was tasked with the dreadful job about going to find out more about it and he heard from the general manager. We used to be a members and a tenants restaurants only. I mean, the very exciting news is we finally opening uh, to the public. And obviously, from now on, everyone will be able to visit such an iconic place in London and possibly uh, the world as well. Well, and it's amazing timing because, you know, in London, we're enjoying this amazing heat and amazing weather. And I'm sure people would love to see the view because tell us exactly where it's located, in which floors of the Gherkin. So we're right at the top. Uh, you've got the bar, which will become a destination for uh, cocktail and, uh, and champagne. 
so it will be a two point of focus. The very interesting part is we design a, a cocktail menu based on a very historical uh, place in London. So almost using the gherkin as a as a center point and uh, use it as a almost a compass. So the cocktail menu will be uh, divided in four sections and link to some very particular and historical location of uh, of London. Talking about the bar itself on this beautiful summery days, what what would you recommend as a refreshing cocktail from the menu? So a drink I will recommend, especially with uh, this lovely weather, it's uh, a cocktail uh, called uh, Ebi. It's basically a cocktail named after a Greek uh, goddess. On a, it's v very fresh, very uh, aromatic, based on a rosemary on thyme with a hint of uh, honey, with such a warm weather and uh, some amazing, uh, amazing view. It's uh, it's just a perfect drink to start to start your meal. Actually, it's perfect, and I do like anything with rosemary as well. <laughs> I have a question for you. I mean, of course, you're the general manager of the restaurant and of the bar. How how is it to manage things, especially when you know something so high up? I mean, there's quite a lot of challenges. You know, if you have food distribution or anything, does it bring more challenges? The fact that it's so kind of high up. I mean, I think any type mm. of challenge can be overturned. On I think, uh, obviously, yeah, we we right on the top. So if I forget uh, a bottle of wine, we have to go all the way to the basement. <laughs> so you have to really think. Let's not forget that bottle of wine. But I imagine, I guess you learn from the mistake, on uh, you get to. To organize yourself a bit better because we've been trading for about 10 years now a lot of these challenges have been uh, overcome and yeah you know it's it's like everything however uh, it's an amazing location to be to be running and um, seeing any customer uh, attending the venue on just uh, being amazed by the view on the on the places It's amazing. And food-wise, the restaurant, I mean, is it is it going to be quite seasonal, local ingredients from, from what I've... Uh, absolutely. The main focus will be a British influence, very down uh, to, to products on the, on the sourcing. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine dining restaurant, but in a very contemporary uh, environment and a service. Therefore, uh, the style of food will be relatively simple with pretty much everything uh, sourced uh, in in UK and in terms of the service we try to bring uh, a very relaxed atmosphere. This is the Sunday brunch, the name of our show. Would you serve some sort of brunch sometimes? Absolutely. As well? So uh, we've just started, and it's very exciting. We um, doing a Sunday brunch every every week now, and throughout the year we will be par partnering with uh, different champagne houses. So the upcoming one is will be with uh, Perrier Jouet, uh, Perrier Jouet Champagne. So. You can have uh, an amazing uh, Sunday brunch with uh, some bubble on. The <laughs> That's my kind of brunch. That's my kind of brunch. <laughs> and when is it open to the public? So we've got only a few more days to wait. And uh, the big day is the 12th of July, which the official uh, launch night. That's what I call a brunch. The general manager of Helix and Iris, uh, Karim Leclerc, was talking to Fernando Agosto Pachaco. 
That's all we have time for today's edition of Sunday Brunch. Thanks for your company and thanks too to our producer and studio manager George McDonough and our researcher Limichi Okamoto. Coming up, a mixtape of our favourites on the Midori House sessions and then from midday, Augustin Machilari and Tom Edwards will bring us the Monocle Weekly. But for me, for now, Emma Nelson, it's goodbye. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you.